There are times when I'll step into a senior management group decision, but in general, I like to leave it, I like to stand back from it. Because what's, what's the message I'm giving if I step in all the time? Is that I'm always the ultimate decision maker. And what does that mean? Well, that means that no decision can be made without me. What does that mean? That means that people are not getting comfortable making their own decisions. So you have to also make sure that you develop the strength and armament of people around you so that they can function in a, in a high way in, a, in, in their own large unit. That's Dr. Jim Madera, today on Behind the Microscope. Hello everyone and welcome back. I'm Bijan Sadie and this is Behind the Microscope, a podcast about the people and process behind the scenes of science and medicine. Today we are delighted to bring you a conversation with Dr. Jim Madera, CEO and Executive Vice President of the American Medical Association. Dr. Madera began his career at Harvard, where he spent 22 years, later becoming the Chair of Pathology at Emory University, then the Dean of the Medical School and CEO of the Hospitals at the University of Chicago, before joining the leadership at the AMA. Dr. Madera discusses his life, his views on leadership, and his legacy. And a quick note, we're still getting the hang of remote podcasting, and the sound quality at the beginning is not the best, but we make some adjustments and the sound quality improves. With that, it's our honor to bring you our conversation with Dr. Jim Madera. Can you just tell us the story of how you got interested in medicine and, and then how you got interested in becoming a physician scientist? Oh, sure. So um, I was probably in the fifth or sixth grade. I think it was the fifth grade, sixth grade. And I was playing basketball uh, at lunchtime out on the by the school and grew up in central Pennsylvania uh, ended up running into the pole trying to do a layup and then that night my parents took me to the local high school football game and I started having pounding headaches mm. uh, ended up being transferred to Philadelphia and had a cavernous sinus thrombosis wow uh, so it was in isolation for a while and then a, ch a children's unit for a month or so. Uh, and it got me introduced to medicine. Um, you know, it was very painful at first and I didn't like the isolation for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. But once the pain resided, uh, subsided, and I was in this room full of kids, uh, we play, you know, games and, uh, throw flashlights on the ceiling and tease the nurses. It was fun. Mm -hmm. I got to really like medicine then. So anyway, went to medical school. And uh, I guess the first lesson is I decided in medical school there was a person who was probably the best known person uh, in medical school. It was a radiation oncologist. Mm -hmm. And so I did a radiation oncology uh, year and really liked it. But the lesson is picking out someone who was impactful um, and was good as a mentor. Uh, ended up doing a rotation at Harvard and then went to the Joint uh, Center for Radiation Therapy at Harvard for my residency. Okay. Uh, it's across all the institutions. 
and um, Sam uh, Hellman was ahead of that then. Sam went on to be the uh, physician-in-chief at Sloan Kettering. And then after that, he went to University of Chicago as dean. So he was one of my predecessors uh, okay. in the history of things. Um, and I told Sam that I didn't think that I had uh, really enough experience in pathology to understand and talk to the pathologist about the various tumor diagnoses. And so could I do a, I can't remember, three or six month rotation in anatomic pathology uh, before I started my radiation oncology? Mm -hmm. He said, sure. Um, so I started my anatomic pathology there in Boston. And I remember going down to the cafeteria at one o'clock to get some lunch. And I'd be down there with uh, the, uh, the other pathology residents. And then our colleagues who were in surgery and medicine uh, would come down and they would look bedraggled. Um, and we exchanged stories about what we were doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and what they were doing was learning dosages for um, congestive heart failure, uh, this kind of thing. And what we were doing was talking about molecular basis of disease. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I want to talk about the molecular basis of disease. Uh, and so I switched and dropped out of the radiation oncology program, went full time in the pathology program. Mm. Uh, and then uh, I ran into a, a GI pathologist named Roger Haggett, who unfortunately was um, was was killed when he was he he left and became head of AP at uh, University of Washington, Seattle, and uh, bad story was ended up being shot when he was in Seattle. Oh. But Roger was a, a friend. Um, he was distinguished in his field and wealth at the young age. Uh, and so he was someone who just appealed to me as another mentor mm -hmm. um, and decided that I wanted to go a little deeper into that field. And so I ended up shifting into uh, cell biology training okay. uh, in what was then the Department of Anatomy, now the Department of Cell Biology at Harvard. Uh, also working with Jerry Trier, who was a professor of medicine, very kind to me, mm -hmm. um, uh, very supportive, a tough guy, uh, also another good mentor, um, and ended up going on the faculty after that training. And one of the things that I, pre I thought I would go on for maybe a year or two uh, because there was a person named Dan Friend in cell biology at UCSF who was interested in me having come to come out to UCSF. Mm -hmm. um, but two things happened. The years drifted by, uh, and I was successful there. I had great colleagues. But also there was another really important mentor, and that was a fellow named Ramsey Cotran. Mm -hmm. um, who at that time uh, did the book that Vinay Kumar now shepherds for pathology that is, is probably familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, Ramsey was 
uh, a statesman. He was also the person who helped develop vascular biology at Harvard. Uh, Mike Lombroni, uh, you know, those, Tim Springer. Um, so he was, uh, he wrote this textbook. He was the chief editor of the textbook. My granddaughter's at the window who record teams, so I'm just waving to her. Um, and uh, he had, was really respected as someone who developed vascular biology. Um, and he was really involved in academic uh, and organizational medicine as well. So he was at that time probably the best known pathologist in the world mm -hmm. uh, with all of those things put together. And he threaded a lot of needles that were important. So for example, um, Rich, Russell Ross, who was head of pathology at Seattle at that time, and a vascular biologist, uh, had major disagreements of how blood vessel um, pathology started with the Boston group. Okay. And this was creating a split a uh, kind of postal split in the field of vascular biology. Mm -hmm. And Ramsey had recruited uh, a engineer, a flow engineer from, I think, Oxford, uh, Peter Davies, uh, who was an important person in, in our area. He ended up essentially giving Peter, Peter wanted to have another experience, giving Peter Davis to Russell Ross and it was his statesmanship mm. that brought together the field. So rather than being contrarian opinions, they fused and had different points of view and were productive one with the other. Mm. Um, the other thing Ramsey did uh, is he protected the young pathologists that were academic pathologists, NIH funded, um, in the department. Uh, you knew that he would always have your back. He would do things that were unsettling at times. Mm -hmm. uh, I took my uh, first grant renewal uh, over to show and showed Ramsey. And he said the score did not match the critique. So he, even though it was a fundable score, he insisted on calling my exec at NIH in my presence and started yelling out. Oh my gosh. Please don't do this. <laughs> right. um, but he was quite a character. Uh, and he had a way of motivating that was sometimes odd. Um, I, I re received what was called then the Park Davis Award for an experimental pathologist under 40. Mm -hmm. And we had Mike Jambroni uh, who's recently retired, very senior National Academy person in, in vascular biology, who was the first in the department to be given this award. Um, Abu Abbas, who was chair at UCSF and has recently stepped down. Uh, Jeff Sklar, who's now at Yale. Mm. Um, and uh, Jordan Prober, Pober, who's also at Yale. Or oh, not Jordan, it was Tucker Collins who was chair at uh, Children's um, and then uh, died at a young age. Anyway, uh, they were all clustered around Ramsey 
for our Thursday morning meeting, I had just gotten a letter uh, and I was really proud to live that myself. And so I knew that Ramsey would know. And so I went and we joined this crowd that was talking. And uh, I just sat there smiling and looking at Ramsey, stood there smiling. Ramsey looked at me and he said to everyone else, he said, oh, by the way, uh, I need to tell you that until now, Jim was the only one among you that had not won the Park Davis Award. <laughs> uh, so he had this kind of strange way of, um, of motivating. Anyway, the, I think the lesson around Ramsey is that he was an unusual person, a big personality, really mm -hmm. small, and it ties into this history of having mentors. Mm -hmm. um, I was given a professorship, uh, and I don't know if you know the Harvard Quad, but there's a building on top of the quad uh, where this, the administrative building with the pillars and overlooks the quad. And there's this fancy room in it called the Benjamin Waterhouse Room um, with, you know, 50 by 40 oriental rug, fireplace, wall paneling, whatnot. And so they had a reception there uh, for me. And I was hoping Gary Trier, this senior person who was a tough guy that was so supportive, um, would come to the reception. And people came in, people were congratulating me. Um, and it was, people were just starting to drift out. And Ramsey uh, was almost ready to leave. And Jerry finally showed up. So I was really delighted that he came. And he came over to me and said, Jim, um, this means you'll never leave Harvard. It means you'll ne never, never need what? He said, this means you'll, you'll never leave Harvard uh. and finish your career here. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that affected me. And I looked around the room and saw some older guys in peaceful suits. And I drove home depressed like I had gotten a life sentence. Hmm. Um, and it's the first I began to think about maybe something else. Uh, mm -hmm. And a couple of years later, um, I was recruited as chair of the at Hopkins. And Mike Johns was the dean at the time. Mm -hmm. And it just wasn't, I went back for like a second visit. It was just didn't suit. Um, my wife and I just didn't want to leave Boston at the time. Mm -hmm. So it didn't put it on the side for a while. And then probably three years later, Mike had gone to Emory hmm. as the chancellor. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were looking for a chair of pathology. So he and Tom Lolly called me. Um, I went down. I really liked Mike. And I really liked Tom. Mm -hmm. And I really liked the attitude then at Emory, which was... Um, kind of an Avis attitude of we're going we're gonna to work really hard, we're going to build this place up, we're going to be very competitive, mm -hmm. we have good resources. And it wasn't the self-satisfied attitude um, mm -hmm. that I was used to. Mm -hmm. Again, like to people, um, moved down, it was great. Uh, 
it struck me as a little wild west in that both Tom and Mike would allow you to do almost anything you wanted to do uh, in terms of growing and building. Mm -hmm. Very supportive. And I could have spent probably the rest of my career there. Hmm. And I got a call from the University of Chicago, president of the University of Chicago, a guy named Don Randall. Um, and he asked me to, uh, that there had been a search committee, my name had come up. Uh, he would like me to come and look at the University of Chicago as the dean. I told him that I was really happy where I was, um, didn't want to do it, uh, was really flattered. And then he said, okay, and we talked for about 40 minutes and he was just uh, wonderful. He turned out to be not only another good mentor, but probably he was a musicologist by training, had been huh. head of music at Princeton and then provost at Cornell. Uh, before becoming president of the University of Chicago. Um, it turns out he was probably the most scholarly person I've ever met in my life. Uh, and it was just fascinating and interesting. Um, but I didn't want to do anything different uh, at the time. But I really liked him. And so he called me back and he said he'd like me to visit. And I told him that um, I really loved talking with him. Chicago was a great place, but I was happy where I was. And it's just been about five years. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of travel. Um, he said, well, what's your next travel? And I said, well, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to Boston. He said, well, why don't you come through Chicago? I said, I really impressed I can't do that and he said well why don't we do this the chair of the um, board at University of Chicago will have his private plane pick you up drop you in Chicago we'll spend four hours together you'll be in Boston earlier than you would have been through commercial uh, and everything will be fine so I did that and I just had the most wonderful afternoon with him. Mm -hmm. uh, I can imagine, I just wanted to work with him. Mm -hmm. um, so I ended up thinking through that. And then the other thing is there was a job to do. I, you know, Chicago had had a lot of brains, brain drain. Mm -hmm. A couple of prominent National Academy people had left. Um, the facilities were abysmal. Uh, mm. They needed new clinical facilities, new research facilities. Uh, but like Emory, it was embedded within the campus. And you could see your way toward building things that would be spectacular because chemistry was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Physics was fantastic. Um, social sciences, economics was fantastic. Right. The business school, the law school. Um, and so there was a lot to build on. Uh, so I ended up going there. Um, and really had a wonderful time there. We did some difficult things, but we rebuilt the biomedical campus. I think it was, uh, as I recall, it was something like um, the average age per square foot 
when I got there was something like 1960. And when I left, it was 1999. Uh, uh, so we moved the facilities up a generation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then we were able to recruit. Um, and Don uh, was a really reasonable person as president. Who, um, I would cost account the overhead we would bring in and then look at what we paid the university. And we weren't getting the full value and payback for the overhead we were putting in. Mm -hmm. I couldn't ask for more because if I asked for more, I would be asking to take something away from social science and visit physics and whatnot. That would be unreasonable to do to a president. But mm -hmm. what I could do is if I scale the funding up, can that additional indirect be on a new formula? Um, and so we agreed to do things like that, uh, that allowed the rebuilding uh, there and was there for eight or nine years. Um, I took a year, about a year and a half after leaving, and I was introduced to Mike Levitt, who was the, who was a three-term governor of Utah and then became um, Secretary of Health and Human Services in the George W. Bush administration. And when the Obama administration came in, obviously he was going to be replaced as secretary as the new president uh, replaced the cabinet. And a friend of mine uh, who knew Mike well thought that we'd get along splendidly. So had this introduction um, and he was a different kind of mentor, uh, an elegant guy, and he was starting his own um, advisory consulting firm in healthcare. And so I joined that firm and helped build it, helped in the, uh, building a Chicago out, outpost. And but I let Mike know that I would never, um, consulting was not, from my point of view, it wasn't doing. It was mm -hmm. basically dropping in to advice having someone have something in it and then you know, going out and seeing what's going on. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't my style, but he knew I'd be looking around. Um, but the mentoring there was to be more easy on my feet. Tell me if I'm going too long. No, this is great. It was, yeah. um, so the kind of thing that I would learn from Mike, and Mike was a very, um, calm, smart, wise person. But if you're Secretary of Health and Human Services, you have a trillion dollar budget. Mm -hmm. And when you're a governor, you have a big budget. Right. He had been a businessman before he governor. And so he was used to a scale that I wasn't. Um, and so he would, uh, I was an auditor, people make money makers, and I had NIH grant deadlines, I would always have the grant done and ready to send in three or four weeks in advance. Mm -hmm. So in the plan, in case I had the flu or broke my leg or something. Right. Um, so I always wanted to be prepared. And the, my day with Mike was something like, I would get a call from his office, uh, you know, I was living in Chicago, and his office would say, can you meet Governor Levitt tomorrow uh, morning in Manhattan for a meeting? <laughs> I would say, well, sure, it's about 
noon now, I have to get a flight. Right. And they say, well, we'll get a flight for you to the airport. And I say, well, uh, what's the meeting about? Uh, governor will tell you when he meets you. Okay. We'll be in time to have a conversation tonight. Where am I going to stay? Uh, as soon as you land at LaGuardia, um, we will let you know what hotel to go to. Okay. Go to this hotel. And I'd get a message that uh, Governor Levis is not going to make it into a late flight. So he'll be able to meet you in the lobby at quarter of eight tomorrow. So go down the lobby and Mike would come up and say, hey, Jim, you know, really nice to see you. How's the family? And uh, by the way, we have an eight o'clock meeting. It'll be about a 10 minute walk. And so we should get going. And I'd say, well, family's great, Mike. Hope you're doing well. Um, what's this all about? And he would start walking and chit-chatting. And uh, he'd say, well, you know, we're going to meet the board of the Allen Brothers Investment Bank uh, for this purpose. And we'd be going up in the elevator. And he would say, so what, what I'm going to do is introduce you and throw it to you for say 15, 20 minutes. I just want you to talk about the state of healthcare for 15 or 20 minutes. Um, and when you feel it's right, throw it to me. And we would walk into the boardroom and that would be it. And uh, you know, it was, it was staggering to me, um, but a really learning opportunity. Yeah. Uh, I then ended up, um, Mike was also, he now has a pretty well-established second area of the firm, which is a private equity uh, area. Uh, it's kind of a mix between venture and private equity. And I had some early indoctr- indoctrination there. Uh, and then I went to, um, I got a call from uh, a headhunter. I think it was a headhunter or the head of the search committee at the American Medical Association. And um, they said that I, they would like me to be a candidate for the CEO there. I, I remember saying, I said, yeah, I, I'm not sure you have the right phone number. Um, I didn't know anything about the AMA except it was an old, you know, iconic organization, organized medicine. I knew about JAMA because as, as Dean, I had to have a copy of JAM in the New England Journal out in the waiting room. Um, uh, I had become a member as a dean largely for solidarity, uh, but I had no understanding of what the organization was about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said I was not interested, and then I got a package, and the head of the search committee, who was a psychiatrist from Colorado, uh, who was also just an attractive personality, called and he said he wanted me to look through the material. And I looked through the material and um, what I found was that the mission statement was to promote the art and science and medicine, the betterment of public health, which is not what I would have guessed the mission statement would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought, boy, I, you know, that's an attractive mission statement. Right. And then I looked through uh, things that they did, and they have this house of delegates, all the 
180 medical societies, state and specialty societies that make the policy in a very democratic way. It's like something that would happen in Congress twice a year. Um, and that kind of reminded me of a big faculty senate, which I was used to from the University of Chicago. It worked in the same way. Uh, and then the internal business, we have a lot of business products that are business to business. Uh, it was kind of like running a hospital. You know, I'd mm. be CEO of the health system before I left, uh, you know, which is Chicago. Um, the other thing, they had six or seven revenue streams that didn't correlate well. Um, so it was very different than the three streams in academic medicine where, you know, you lose money and you have to backfill and through those mm -hmm. streams, research and education. Um, and then in research, uh, I mean, in medical domain, you can make a ever decreasing height margin. Um, philanthropy was the other thing that I actually worked on a lot in Chicago because of, I can give you the arithmetic. But it, if I give you the arithmetic, you can see why he's been on um, philanthropy. Um, anyway, uh, I thought I'd go and try it out, and it actually worked out well. Um, there was never a long-term, when I asked what they wanted, they said, we've never had a long-term strategy, so we'd like to have a long-term strategy. Hmm. Um, and we want to make the mission statement come more to life. Okay. So those two things. And the reason there had never been a long-term strategy is this House of Delegates, 650 delegates that debate policy twice a year. And if you're going to have policy creation twice a year, then how can you have a long-term strategy? Right. And um, the answer to that question, and this I learned from Michelle Obama, who was my... Um, uh, Vice President for Community Affairs, when I was CEO of University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. The South Side, as this problem you had to deal with, because it was a really underserved area. Um, and she would teach you to say, look, whenever you think there's a problem, you look for the hidden assets. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what drove us to uh, create the system of community linkages to community clinics, or for example, FACs. So the same thing with our policy portfolio. What's the asset there? And the asset was that these were policies created by all the medical societies in the United States, which gives it the heft in DC. And you you look at it too granular, you don't see the long-term strategy, mm -hmm. you go to 30,000 feet and say, okay, what are the meta messages? Mm -hmm. where, where are 60 policies aggregated around one theme? Mm -hmm. And what is that theme? And you realize that you can easily define three themes and the house is never gonna back away from those things. And so those themes were moving medical education into the 21st century. Mm -hmm. How do we deal with chronic disease that now takes up 85% of that $3.5 trillion spend? Um, and how do we get physicians to spend their time more being doctors 
than a data entry workforce uh, and, you know, filling out forms. Um, so those were the three arcs. And then the last thing I'll add is a, um, once we got those things established and moving, they moved quite well. Um, oh, by the way, let me take a sidetrack here. Look at the AMA YouTube um, for uh, a national medical graduation. It was on, um, it was on uh, last night. So it's now you can see it. Oh, I got an email about this. It was pretty star studded group, right? Yeah, yeah, it was great. And it was, it's a nice mixture of light things and um, serious things. Uh, you know, Tua Gawande, Don, Don Berwick couldn't have been better. Mm -hmm. Our own Aletha Maybank, who we hired for a center for health equity, a new center, couldn't mm -hmm. have been better. And then some of the stars were also good. The one that sticks out to me is Jeff Bridges. I didn't realize that although he was the dude in The Big Lebowski, I don't know if you know the movie. Yes, of course. Um, I didn't know that, I thought he was acting. He wasn't acting, that's him. He used to be. Uh, you'll, see that, you'll see that in his comments. His advice to the graduates was to abide. Um, uh, um, anyway, back, back to the story. Uh, Dr. Madeira, I'm going to um, turn off the video because I think that the sound is better okay. if I do that. So I'm just going to stop both of our videos. And, but yes, continue. So, so, so um, I had the, a fellow that I really liked on the visiting committee when I was at the University of Chicago, Doug Given. And Doug was an alum, MD, PhD, University of Chicago. Um, uh, immunity virology was his PhD. Okay. And he'd gone, did his residency at the Mass General, and then basically went to industry at Libby, I mean at Lilly, mm -hmm. uh, then became head of uh, worldwide R&D at, um, um, I think, Mallinckrodt, uh, and then had gone into venture and was a partner at Bay City Capital, which was a venture firm in San Francisco. Uh, we always hung out together. Um, he was, we had a, a lunch uh, at the AMA. He was in town and he said he was gonna, there was, they were gonna do a third fund at Bay City and he didn't think he was gonna be part of it. Mm -hmm. And he'd had enough. And I said, well, what are you gonna do? And he said, well, um, I'm going to do a third of my time in venture, a third of my time helping uh, these guys that are founding CEOs of two or three biotech startup firms in San Francisco. And then a third of my time having fun. And I don't know what I'm, you know, I said, well, what are you going to do for fun? And he said, well, he teaches entrepreneurship both at the Booth School at Chicago Mm -hmm. at um, the Kellogg School at Northwestern. And he's not sure how much more he wants to do with that. And I said, well, here, here's the thing. Why don't you do this for fun? Come to the AMA, spend about a third of your time mm -hmm. uh, in the building. I'll introduce you. Go unit by unit, business by business, 
and look at it from a venture point of view and see if we have uh, venture opportunities mm-hmm. that we're not thinking about uh, in a different kind of way. And he did that, um, decided we did have a lot of opportunity. And so we launched this innovation company in San Francisco, uh, Health, Health 2047. Mm-hmm. And to do that, I was convinced that um, well, how are we going to do this when you have this sort of iconic bureaucratic organization um, of the AMA and it's very cautious mm-hmm. and you want to do something that's more in the venture realm. Mm-hmm. And I looked at models at, you know, uh, various universities of their venture centers um, and also a couple of businesses and I didn't like any of them because mm-hmm. They had three problems. Um, the first problem is that no matter how much you want to leave the venture arm, move fast and independently, mm-hmm. can't as a university or business prevent yourself from quenching uh, that activity with your bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And the, the humorous way I would put it to people is that, you know, they would pet the, the, the universities and businesses would pet the gerbil until it died. <laughs> right. uh, the second problem is that there's a lot of variation in medicine. Uh, you've seen one integrated health system, you've seen one. Mm-hmm. And so you tend to look internally and solve your own problems. And that means you solve small problems mm-hmm. and small problems aren't going to scale right um, if you have for the solutions and then finally most places are not in um where you want the people uh they're not uh you know they're not where you can get a lot of engineers and technologists you know rochester minnesota is a great place they do great work but um you know try to get the best engineers from Silicon Valley out there. Right. Exactly. So those were three problems. And I found a model I really liked and, um, it was, uh, in QTEL, which okay. was developed by the central intelligence agency in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. And so I dug into that, got to know the person who did the operating plan, set it up. Um, and it was arm's length, independent, uh, it could be in the right environment. And so all I had to do was sell the AMA board on putting money into something that they would not control and have no say in. Mm-hmm. It would be in San Francisco, uh, ultimately in Menlo Park, mm-hmm. uh, and would be the commercial translation of the problems we have in our strategic arcs. Hmm. Um, so we have our strategic arcs. The commercial translation is around those arcs is what's done in Health 2047. Hmm. So uh, we ended up doing that. You know, I, I chair the board at Health 2047, which was their carrot. Mm-hmm. Because as a CEO, I'm the only employee of the board, mm-hmm. which means that the board can fire me at will. So I would say, don't worry about it. If there's something you don't like, you know where to go and who to fire. Right. Uh, and so we ended up doing that. Um, we've now spun out five companies. Hmm. Um, 
we have a fund, Health 2047 Capital Partners now. Um, and so the fund is a venture fund with the guide rails being the strategic pillars of Health 2047, which are the commercial translation of the strategic arcs of the AMA. Hmm. Um, and United Health Group is a major investor. Um, Celgene is the first customer of one of our companies. And we have s several of these up on the web with their own websites now, but um, we also have a co-investment in uh, a company where we're developing jointly with NASDAQ. Um, so uh, that has worked out really well. And I think these companies are, will you know, be in uh, series B, series C in two years. Um, and so they'll, I think they'll get some attention. Uh, that has taken more, to, more of my time than I thought because it's, um, I have to be on the board of some of these companies. Mm -hmm. And so my board time has really exploded. Mm -hmm. So that's the um, story. Um, the advice that I derive from that is, it's all about your mentors. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and people that will support you, people that you personally feel a connection with, mm -hmm. uh, and people that have the right attitudes. And by the right attitude, I mean, um, they care more, they, they recognize that the success of people that affiliate with them, mm -hmm. uh, long-term is going to be much more important than your own success. Hmm. So how that translates in a science lab is that you have to be, you know, if there's someone that comes in your lab as a postdoc uh, and they open up an area, mm -hmm. they have some great founding work in this area. You, when they go to get a faculty position, you can't throw them out there into the tide right. and keep the project yourself. Um, you have to put your own self at risk if you're going to have them be more successful. Mm -hmm. And then being more successful is actually your ultimate goal because you're going to be dead someday and those guys are still going to be alive. Right. Um, um, where, do you th where do you think you learned that from? Because I, 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 I think that, uh, you know, some of the people I – was with this guy, Roger Haggett, um, had that, it was like that. Ramsey Cotran, mm -hmm. I was very much like that. Don Randall, who was the president who recruited me, who uh, could have choked because after three and a half years, he left to become, he's now retired, but he left to become head of the Mellon Foundation in New York. Mm -hmm. um, uh, those people. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I also kind of learned implicitly to, to have some rules that feel right to you. Mm -hmm. um, and they're touchstones that, you know, they may only be three, four, five things. Mm -hmm. But when you come up to a difficult problem, if you say, okay, what, I'm going to go to my touchstones. Yeah. Um, it always makes it easier. And you, you, know, you can keep them secret or share them. You can do whatever you want with them. But um, 
And mine were always, uh, and I got this from Ramsey Cotran, who used to say this out loud, um, always take the high road. And that sounds very subjective, but when you have a difficult choice to make um, in your interactions with say another group or some people, if you say, well now, what if I apply always takes the high road, what does it look like? It's always clarifying. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is don't mistake a drop ball for a conspiracy. Hmm. Uh, you know, often people are left out of the loop on calls or someone wasn't shown one of the drafts of a paper um, or, you know, some other aspect like this happens. And we can, as people, intrinsically start thinking about, about it in conspiratorial ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people basically aren't that good at conspiracy. <laughs> Or it's more like it's more likely a stupid a stupid mistake or a drop mm-hmm. um, and that saves um, a bundle of time mm-hmm. another one is you know at the end of the day if you aren't having some laughs what are you doing um, are you enjoying yourself mm-hmm. uh, that I think is an important one, and the answer is, if the answer is you're not really enjoying yourself, and you go through days at a time where you don't have laughs with colleagues, then you're doing the wrong thing, most mm-hmm. and you're in the wrong setting. Um, uh, and another one would be, um, of what I'm working on right now and what I'm doing, mm-hmm. what is sort of, what are the big things is percent effort. Okay. So these are the two things that drain a lot of my effort mm-hmm. in the big scheme of things. How important are these? Mm-hmm. Um, are they important enough for me to be spending that much time on? Mm-hmm. And if they aren't, what's the opportunity cost? Right. Feels a lot much more important to me um, that I could be working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and I wanted to ask you about your lab because so many people from your lab have gone on to have big research programs of their own. How did you, did you have any strategy on how you recruited those people or, and or mentored them such that, that you had such an overwhelmingly successful kind of legacy? I think a central, um, I think the top line there, there are some, a few things, but the top line goes back to this, um, who, whose career is more successful, who is more important? Mm-hmm. People that are around you or yours? Right. Um, and if you think it's the people that are around you, then you have to have their backs, you have to give them resources, and you have to let go of things that are kind of painful to let go of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you let go of areas and you can't come up with equally interesting new areas, well, maybe you're not cut out for this. Maybe you shouldn't have a, a lab with a lot of good postdocs. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, and then, you know, you, if you get a sort of you know, a genuine thrill in the 
the successes that they have. Um, and you help them with, uh, you talk to them, you help them with other things. Um, you know, Chuck Parkos is now beginning his second term uh, successfully at the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he should be thinking about, um, you know, is he doing everything he can toward the retirement date that he has, whenever that is, even if he works till he's 80, and how's he thinking about those things? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he has to be successful uh, as, you know, individual as well. Um, and then, you know, you could also be a sounding board for um, people. And you have to be careful because you also, I've made a couple of mistakes where I really wanted someone to be a success. Mm-hmm. Um, but they wanted to go a path that was a little different than mine. Yeah. And a person who pops out there would be Gail Hecht. Mm-hmm. Um, Gail had two offers uh she was offered and when she left the lab she wanted to go back to chicago she wanted to go to chicago she was from iowa initially the midwest mm-hmm. um, and she had an offer from uh university of illinois at chicago and she had an offer from university of chicago mm-hmm. and university university of chicago had um conversitis with head of GI there, you know, um, they had some very good people, you know, clinically Steve Hanauer, um, experimentally Gene Chang, uh, Mike Field was still there, has now passed away. Uh, you know, the electrophysiology mm-hmm. uh, uh, giant and GI. And she wanted to go to UIC and um, because it, Chicago, she thought she'd be another assistant professor. Mm-hmm. But at UIC, she would be uh, something special and she could establish, you know, grow her, her own unit. Mm-hmm. And I think I inadvertently probably insulted her um, uh, by telling her she had to go to University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. She went to UIC and it worked out fine. Um, but I kind of felt bad about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they also can't, you know, it's like seeing patients. Uh, when you look at the, if you look at the graduation, you'll see a, a Tool Gawande's uh, short piece. And, you know, he says you need to have three things and I'll go in the reverse order that he did. Um, you know, you, you have to implement a plan and that's difficult to do. You have to work with other people and get that done. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing, that was the third thing. The second thing was the plan. You have to have a plan. Mm-hmm. The first thing um, was you ha- you have to understand what the goals are uh, and the perspective of the individual patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just can't throw the same algorithm on everyone. And if you start if you start creating a plan that doesn't align with the internal compass and goals of the patient. Mm-hmm steps two and three aren't going to work. Right. And that would have been the lesson that I um, wasn't applying, say, in my conversation with Gail. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was thinking about what faculty position to take. Right. 
because every man's goals are going to be slightly different. And so it takes a different approach. Yeah. Um, and, and mostly, um, and the other thing I try to let people know is, uh, you know, I just recited to you something that sounded like a semi-linear chain of rational decision-making in a career. And it was nothing like that. It was, um, you know, a lot of happenstance and picking up calls and, you know, making trips to this place or that and um, could have gone, you know, 10 different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was no intern- internal well-thought-out logic to it, really. Mm-hmm. And if you think of the opportunities people like yourself have, mm-hmm. um, you know, you spend a lot of time thinking about, should I do this? Should I do that? I have this offer, I have that offer. Uh, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. You're going to be successful. Um, and, you know, these are, these are, um, choices that are, um, uh, so, sort of the privileged, difficult qualities to make, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and you could have, you could go, uh, clinical full-time you could go research full-time you could have chimeric thing you could go in a leadership position you can go to industry uh and at the end of the day you're probably going to be uh really satisfied and happy mm-hmm. um, and given that the other thing is don't 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 be afraid of shifting your fields shifting the type of field that you're in occasionally mm-hmm. um you know, I love my science field, uh, the academic field, the hospital leadership field, the Deaton's field. Mm-hmm. Well, I wouldn't give any of it back. Um, and it's not as though I tremendously miss something. I would say I tremendously retrospectively enjoy what I did. Mm-hmm. I'm doing something different and I'm learning a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, I I'm will be starting my tenth year at the AMA, which, frankly, without the West Coast stuff, may have been about the right amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the West Coast stuff starting three years ago, I mean, that's an entirely different right. Environment for me. That's awesome. Um, and I wanted to talk briefly about. Uh, you said one of your main goals at the AMA is to bring medical education into the 21st century. Um, What are some of the things that the AMA and and you think um, we still need to, or or we have over the past 10 years, but, but potentially also still need to be changing um, in medical education or, and, or the way we train physician scientists. So, um, couple of things there. Uh, most people at medical school, you know, uh, you know, in the, the way it was up until now, a lot of places, up until what it was three years ago, others. Um, number one is you waste your fourth year. And, and your fourth year is spent on airplanes interviewing. Mm-hmm. 
what a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you show up into your residency and the majority of people that show up in their internships, uh, their program directors, if they were speaking the truth, would tell you that they spend the first three to six months uh, going through teaching them what they thought they were supposed to learn in medical school. Mm. Um, we have duplicative aspects of the curriculum, but it's not thoughtful duplicative aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, we have systems like uh, systems that are uh, focused on, you know, whether it's being precision medicine, uh, data, data handling, uh, IT, quantitative analytics, um, all of these things are not a formal part of the medical school curriculum. Mm-hmm. And we've actually identified the third curriculum, I mean, the third piece, there's, there's clinical science, basic science, and there's health system science now. Uh, we have a textbook and have a school consortium of 37 schools um, that participate in this. Mm-hmm. That medical school is time and chair, not measured competencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I was dean, if someone were to ask me um, if I thought the graduating students from University of Chicago were competent in the diagnosis and management of the eight most common diseases in the United States, I would say, well, I think so. Mm-hmm. They said, well, can you show us that with evidence? I said, well, actually, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have that. Right. Um, you know, we should have an evidence-based and competency-based curriculum. And that means people will go through in different times. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, one of our schools, Oregon, uh, the majority of their students are now going through in three years. Hmm. But, you know, there are students that take five, mm-hmm. uh, but they have to have those measured competencies. Hmm. How are they measuring those competencies? Um, you could look at the health system side. Look at the um, uh, Accelerating Change in Medical Education Consortium. Okay. Give an overview. Um, but major competencies is something that's not that hard right now. Mm-hmm. Think, of, um, think of airplanes and pilots, uh, uh, things that are, you know, high risk. Um, uh, you know, you can do this. And, and then in the basic sciences, um, frankly, when we think of people who come through uh, college, mm-hmm have their, you know, pre-med aspects in college. Uh, if you look at, um, uh, not Bob Langer, but Eric, um, the guy at the Broad Institute, uh, Eric, um, can't remember his name, very famous guy. If um, you look at Coursera, uh, biochemistry course. Mm-hmm. Yeah is all you need is probably about 10, 45 minute sessions Mm -hmm. um, with some work groups. And then you need to have the detail that's disease specific 
in the clinical curriculum, which it's somehow missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of this can be done that's web-based. Uh, I don't know if it's still the, still the case, but, you know, Harvard Business School, the accounting course, mm-hmm. is a web-based course from a school in the Midwest. Hmm. Um, you know, if you have a 150 medical schools and you have 150 biochemistry experiences, you know, surely one of them must be the best. Right. Um, so I think this can all be repackaged and, and redone. And uh, what we launched this year was um, reimagining a residency program. And we have eight integrated health systems into that to make off then from the medical school to the residency um, uh, more facile, mm-hmm. which it's not now. Mm-hmm. So that means that people also have to be open to going into residencies, um, not all at one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're finished your curriculum in two and a half years or four and three quarters years, you right. have students. Uh, and our system has to be prepared for that. A lot of the systems that are participating with us actually like it because, you know, everyone flooding in at once and having this <laughs> frank window of danger in July for people in hospitals. Right. Uh, um, anyway, we, we just, you know, kind of do this in an insane way. And I think what has happened is that our the students that we select for medical school mm-hmm. historically are so good and so accomplished that they can overcome this incredibly crappy curriculum we throw them into. Hmm. So, but if we could streamline the curriculum. Yes, streamline the curriculum, introduce topics that are newish, you know, mm-hmm. in science. Uh, that are really important, um, uh, have it sort of measured competency based. Uh, right. And then, you know, we don't have standing in the undergraduate curriculum, so it'll be a while before we get that. But I mean, the undergraduate, I mean, the undergraduate, the college curriculum, the pre-med, mm-hmm. I mean, the people going into medicine have to take calculus, but not statistics. Are you kidding me? Right. Well, yeah, exactly. It makes no sense at all. Right. And I think it totally makes sense that that it could be more at your own pace because some people are going to come in with a very robust understanding of basic science and not as much ability to interact with patients and vice versa. It seems like they're what's weird about medical school curriculum is that it's it's this very broad set of skills that I think you're right. I think that we assume that all students can acquire them in this discrete amount of time that we give them to do that. And the universities, um, you know, universities become so heavily siloed. They're just not good at this. I mean, a great example of this would be um, about a third or 40% of our students uh, at the University of Chicago graduated with joint degrees. Um, And, you know, JD, MBA, um, PhD were the 
and the PhDs were often in the hard sciences, mm-hmm. um, but also not uncommonly in the social sciences, particularly economics. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we actually, because we were uh, simpatico with chemistry and physics, um, having a MD-PhD in, uh, you know, where the PhD was in chemistry or physics actually worked out pretty well. Mm-hmm. But when we went into different schools, it didn't. So if I looked, if someone wanted to do an MBM, an MD-MBA, mm-hmm. if you looked at their MBA, their MBA was not differentiated in any way other than everyone else's MBA. Right. Well, you know, aren't they declaring what they want to do when they say they want to do an MD MBA? And, um, you know, I would ask the graduating students that were MD MBAs, uh, you know, who they got tired of it. I'd say, do you, do you know the name of the CFO of the university or the hospital? Mm-hmm. They say, no. You know, right. I mean, how could you be getting an MD, MBA right. and not and have so declared your interest in the economy of health? Right. No exposure in your training. Right. Yeah. So do you think, so do you think that, do, I guess, do you think that there is, that is this synergy for f- people who do MD, PhDs? Do you think that that is good enough or do you think that, um, I think that, that that works pretty well. The only thing that doesn't work well there is the um, some aspects of the sociology. So, for example, the I was although I was dean of the medical school at Chicago for the first you know several years, it was actually dean of something called biological sciences, mm-hmm. and so that meant I had all the undergraduate biology courses, including paleontology and plant biology and, and whatnot. Okay and evolution, which this day and age makes great sense intellectually. I mean, they're, you know, the, um, you know, that what we know about um, uh, cholesterol, you know, started in plant sterols, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, now that we know the sort of molecular definitions of of uh, the human organism, um, you know, the carryover from C. elegans to, you know, worms used to be, you know, 40 years ago, you know, an, an entirely different thing and unrelated to anything that would be right. uh, a eukaryote, eukaryote I mean, prim, uh, primates. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where the difficulty is, is in the legacy economics. Hmm. Um, so I would have, um, people in uh, biochemistry that were faculty uh, and they were on largely soft um, salaries, Mm -hmm. somewhat supplemented, uh, but they were 12 months. And then across the hall would be a, someone who is, you know, ecology and evolution, Mm -hmm. same building, um, they're on a hard salary, but that's a nine-month salary. Um, that there would be postdocs or graduate students in physics next to 
postdocs um, coming out of biology or biomedicine, mm-hmm. and their economic deals would be different. Right. One from the other, although they'd be across the bench from each other. Right. Um, all right. Well, I have one last question to close, and I think I might know what your answer is going to be, but uh, when you are all, when you're, when you're officially going to retire, um, what, what do you think you'll look back on your career and be the most proud of? I, I think it'll be um, people, mm-hmm. um, institutions, you know, uh, that were, where he had an impact, you know, starting the, starting the GI path, uh, academic research mm-hmm. GI path section at Harvard, you know, Emory pathology had to be shaped up. University of Chicago was, uh, uh, needed a lot of help. AMA needed a lot of help. Um, uh, so the people, the institutions, and now it's news, you know, some companies, Mm-hmm. Uh, that hopefully can be uh, can be impactful, and you know, I um, the one thing that I, I will kind of I kind of miss, but it, you know, it would have cost too much for me mm-hmm. is if you stay your entire life at a university. Um, it is true that you become. Uh, you become, you know, part of that family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, that came back to me. Um, I was asked to speak at a, uh, the, the naming of a building um, uh, at Harvard, at the Brigham. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was being named for Ramsey Cotran, this chair that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And there were five or six of us that spoke. And we were all sort of together at that time. Most everyone else was still there. And being around the folks that had been there and had never left, um, you know, it, it's like going back to your college, uh, your best friends in college you haven't seen for 20 years. And it's like not, not a day has passed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being in that environment, um, is uh you know it's really attractive and is something that you know as you move around give up and change fields you kind of you kind of miss um and this was also brought home to me when i was at university of chicago you know people forget what you've done or they don't know Mm -hmm. i had a uh assistant professor candidate i think it was in cell biology and she had done something um, in her graduate work with um, intercellular tight junctions. And so the department said, uh, given my background, you know, would I meet with her during her recruitment? And I said, sure. And so she came down to my office and we had this nice conversation for about an hour. And she said, ended up, and we chit-chatted at the end for a few minutes. And, and she said at the end, um, this, is, this, this will be really great. And I said, well, it'd be, I hear from the department, it'd be great that you would come. Um, but why do you say that? She said, and she, she slipped. 
And she said, be really great to have a dean that did something important once in his life. <laughs> so, you know, you really shift um, as you shift fields. And right now it's, you know, uh, my senior management team in the AMA have no sense of fundamental biology, you know, sub they have a deep sense of um, RCTs and uh, clinical uh, right. kinds of things. Right. Do you, do, so do you, do you miss that side, the, the basic science side? I do. I, you know, I picked that up, though, in, uh, kind of easily in the um, looking at kind of, you know, the, the review kind of literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the, in terms of the field I used to work in, um, you know, the big, uh, the big splashes I have mm-hmm. is if, you know, Sean or Chuck or Ozma or Gail or Jeff Matthews or, you know, Joanne Lenser or some, one of these people, mm-hmm. uh, shoot me a email with a link to a review that they have is just coming out in some journal. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause then you can get the review, but it's also, um, uh, it just makes you feel great, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, great. I'm going to, um, I'm going to turn the video back on Joe. Do you have, or Joe or Carrie, do you guys have any, um, final questions for Dr. Madera? I do this. Dr. Madera, this is Joe. So all of your successive appointments from, from Harvard uh, to Emory to Chicago to where you are now, it seems like you've um, expanded uh, the number of people you work with along the way. You know, as a lab PI, you have a small cohort that works under you, and you have more of a direct involvement in, uh, in the day-to-day operations with the people working under you. To where you are now, where you rely, I imagine, on uh, a large number of people, many of whom you, you probably don't interact with on a day-to-day basis, per se. But I was just wondering, what um, skills have you developed along the way that you think are really important with, um, with teamwork and being able to uh, communicate and, and delegate um, roles to, to the teams that you uh, have worked on? Yeah, that's a great question. The, um, you know, the scale becomes different, you know, working with 25 people is very different than working with 125 people. And it's very different than working with 6,000 people. Um, and I think the, your direct reports, um, are the most critical people. Um, and now in the AMA, uh, you know, I've basically been able to handpick all my direct reports and they function as a really great team. Um, and you have to uh, socialize. You have to pick really well. You also have to make rapid decisions. Not everyone, you know, there's no one that always picks 100% of the time. In fairness to everyone, if you make the wrong selection, uh, you got to, within four to six months, you got to reverse that. Um, and once you have the right people, um, you sort of learn from them, but they also learn to socialize what your particular views are. 
And then when you, you, you trust someone to the degree that you're going to delegate to them because the trust and the respect you have, you have to act on that delegation. And what I mean for that by that is, you know, a person, um, Ken Sherrigan, who was with me at, um, I feel like he's been with me my whole entire career at University of Chicago. He came, came from Stanford. He's a, a MBA. Um, and I recruited him to Chicago, and now he's chief strategy officer with me. And he understands that if he makes a decision in my absence, uh, a decision that might technically have been, uh, should come from me, that if anything happens or if any question, even if I would disagree with the decision, I'm a hundred percent behind it. It's, you know, they can always, if I'm trusting, if I'm delegating to someone, they can always trust that I'm not going to hang them out. Um, and then, and you know, they can run their own units. And so that's uh, something, those kind of handoffs, I, I think are very important because you have to be able to, you know, amplify yourself. Uh, You also have to, um, when you have a senior management meeting, uh, people are, are watching you and they want to see that you're listening to them as a sign of respect. Um, they want you to, and I, I, I don't think that I should be making every major decision there are times when I'll step into a senior management group decision, but in general, I like to leave it, I like to stand back from it because what's, what's the message I'm giving if I step in all the time is that I'm always the ultimate decision maker. Uh, and what does that mean? Well, that means that no decision can be made without me. What does that mean? That means that people are not getting comfortable making their own decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, so you have to also make sure that you develop uh, the strength and armament of people around you so that they can uh, function in a, in a high way in, a, in, in their own large unit. Great. Thank you. Uh, that was really well put. Thank you so much, Dr. Madeira. It's really an honor to um, get to meet you. It's been fun. That's our episode for this week. We want to thank again Dr. Madeira for being so generous with his time and wisdom. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share us with others you think would appreciate this content. If you have a free moment, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Behind the Microscope is executive produced by Joe Banke, Carrie Jansen, Michael Sayeg, and me. Our faculty advisor is Dr. Brian Robinson. Josh Owens is our associate producer. And I'm Bijan Sadie. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.